Okay, so um, we'll uh, get started on the Great Gatsby. Um, you know, I'm sure that you guys uh, have your own um, views uh, on, on the novel, so, you know, um, something to... Um, so what I'll be talking about today is in some sense um, um, kind of more focus or sharp-edged take on Gatsby, uh, which you're certainly free to dispute um, in section. Uh, but I want to begin with Maxwell Perkins, um, and his name actually came up last time uh, when Fitzgerald read the In Our Time stories, um, the Paris edition. Um, the person he wrote to was Maxwell Perkins to say that he's the real thing, you have to get him. Um, so Maxwell Perkins obviously very, very important. Um, I would say that he really is the muse um, of the 1920s. Um, so the muse doesn't have to be a woman, doesn't have to be a romantic relation. He's just a very, very good reader, um, careful reader, uh, critical reader, as we'll see. Um, and this is a book uh, about Maxwell Perkins and his three sons, um, Fitzgerald on the uh, left, Hemingway in the middle, and um, Thomas Wolfe um, on the right. And these people wrote to him constantly. I mean, he really was their mentor and muse to all three of them. Um, and so Hemingway and Fitzgerald have that in common as well, that they have. It's great to have a, an editor that you know, you're both responding to. Um, so anyway, um, the Maxwell Perkins um, was the one who uh, read the initial drafts of The Great Gatsby, and this is what he said uh, November 20th, 1924. Gatsby is somewhat vague. The reader's eyes can never quite focus upon him. His outlines are dim. Now, everything about Gatsby is more or less a mystery, i.e. more or less vague. And this may be somewhat of an artistic intention, but I think it is mistaken. Could he be physically described as distinctly as the others? And couldn't you add one or more one or two characteristics like the use of that phrase, old sport, not verbal, but physical ones, perhaps. So very upfront about what he likes, and in this case, what he doesn't like. Um, and he's also giving us the terminology, uh, to loose terminology, vagueness, to think about uh, the great Gatsby. Um, and this is what Fitzgerald says back in turn, uh, December 20th, uh, 1924, strange to say, my notion of Gatsby's vagueness was okay. This is a complicated idea, but I'm sure you understand. I know Gatsby better than I know my own child. My first instinct after your letter was to let him go and have Tom Buchanan dominate the book. But Gatsby sticks in my heart. I had him for a while, then lost him, and now I know I have him again. So wonderful, you know. I think I just can't have a better description uh, of an author's relation to his creation, um, and I think that this is actually probably quite common, you know, feeling that you know this character better than you know your family members. Um, but in this case, also being quite um, deliberate and stubborn, um, not in not giving in to Maxwell Perkins' suggestion that he should make Gatsby less vague. And one other um, quote from Fitzgerald to Perkins, this is much later, 1940. Um, I wish I was in print. 
It will be odd a year or so from now when Scotty, his daughter, assures her friends, I was an author, and finds that no book is procurable. Would the 25 cent press keep Gatsby in the public eye? Or is the book unpopular? Has it had its chance? But to die so completely and unjustly after having given so much, even now there is little published in American fiction that doesn't slightly bear my stamp. In a small way, I was an original. It's really heartbreaking that, um, that Fitzgerald and Fenton never knew that the great Gatsby would become the kind of book that it is. I mean, he would be totally flabbergasted. Um, his idea was that you know this was something that would just completely disappear. Um, so you know, I think that we can see several things from um, from this exchange. Um, first, um, is that Fitzgerald really didn't know how this book was going to end up. Um, you know, so it's completely a matter of hindsight that we are able to say now that this is the American classic. Um, he didn't know that it wasn't a classic back then. It was experimental. Um, so you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact it was an experiment. And he really didn't know if it was going to come out well or not. In fact, his hunch um, in 1940 uh, was that it was going to be a failure, that it was going to go nowhere, that it wasn't going to be picked up by anyone. It's just going to, uh, all this effort, all this, um, so much given to the novel, all of that uh, was going to come to nothing. Um, so I think that this in itself uh, suggests to us the experimental nature, that he was trying something new. Um, and because we're so used to it now, it, in some sense, it stops being new to us. So it's very important to go back to that original sense of things being in flux and not being sure if this was the way things were going to go. Um, the other interesting point about this uh, letter is that Fitzgerald said that in a small way, I was an original, right? So this is not actually modesty. Um, I think that he's very proud of the fact that in a small, <laughs> well, I mean, no, it is modesty too, but you know, I think that he's also taking pride in the fact that um, his greatness resides in his smallness, um, that it's really in the small details of the great Gatsby um, that he would most like to be read. Um, so we're very much operating on the micro register today, um, respecting uh, Fitzgerald's sense of what kind of, a, of, a, of an author um, he was. Um, and what I'd like to do today, um, this is basically the uh, outline for today's lecture, um, is to take the terminology uh, from uh, Maxwell Perkins' vagueness and use a slightly more formal term um, and also stretching it a little bit. So the term that I'd like to propose for us to consider today um, as a kind of um, synonym for vagueness um, is counter-realism. Um, you know, we know that there's a lot that is realistic in The Great Gatsby, um, but there's also a strain of counter-realism, and maybe that's why um, it gives the impression of being vague. And um, I'd like to tease out um, some of the, um, the, the attributes or manifestations um, of the counter-realist uh, mode of writing. Um, first of all, um, and I will explain all of this, but there's um, the desire to uh, capture motion. This is actually something um, that was done in 19th century um, 
photography or daguerreotype uh, trying to capture motion. This was started actually um, very much um, by using machines and you know the early camera um, to capture motion. And I think that um, uh, Fitzgerald was trying to do something like that in The Great Gatsby. Um, another um, component of this counter-realism is uh, the uncertain boundaries between the animate and the inanimate, and related to that, human attributes, uh, properties of, the, of human personalities, or properties of the human body um, being uh, channeled or rooted through uh, properties of the machine. Um, and then the two, going back to our uh, discussion of comedy, um, and tragedy, um, there's a variety of high-tech comedy and a variety of high-tech tragedy in this novel, but they also interconnected. So um, let's first look at um, what uh, Fitzgerald is trying to do in capturing emotion. Uh, but I thought that I'll just give you a completely static image okay, of a mansion. Um, um, this is the Guggenheim mansion. Mervey <laughs> um, actually mentioned that she went to a wedding there, right? Your friend, senior your prom. senior prom. Okay. Um, so, um, and uh, this, so this is, you can go and visit. Uh, but, um, I mean, this is the Guggenheim mansion, so, you know, it's over the top. Um, but this is the nature of the, you know, of those mansions um, at Sands Point or East Egg, where Tom and Daisy uh, live. Um, and so this is a very static, very impressive, but static image of a mansion. Um, let's see what how Fitzgerald um, describes the uh, that that uh, Buchanan mansion. The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front lawn for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and break walls and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house, drifting up the side in bright vines, as though from the momentum of his run. It's completely not a static description at all. Um, you know, they, they are, there's a little bit of static description of what the house looks like. But I think that this is really what jumps out at us, is the translation of a static physical object into motion. This is not even trying to capture something that is actually moving. Uh, but trying to attribute motion to something that is otherwise stationary and static. Um, and um, we don't know yet, I mean, this is quite early, so we don't quite know why Fitzgerald would choose to write in this way, but definitely this is a very, very deliberate way of writing. So make sure to keep that in mind, is that there's quite often a kind of conversion. Conversion takes place all the time in Fitzgerald. We've seen that he converts uh, qualities of sound into visual images. And he also converts stationary objects into moving objects. Um, so there's a quality of um, this much, certainly much more dynamic. Um, but it also gives a sense that um, even right here, um, we can say that it's almost as if um, the lawn has agency, right? It's not just sitting there. Um, it's not just a lawn that is mowed by someone. Um, it actually, it starts somewhere, it goes someplace, uh, it jumps over things, um, it generates its own momentum. So the least we can say is that inanimate objects have life and motion and agency. 
And that has tremendous implications both for those inanimate objects and possibly also for animate objects like human beings. You know, when you have inanimate objects taking on the properties of animate human beings, um, what happens to human beings who are supposedly in possession uh, of those properties? Um, so you know, this is just a, a kind of very you know, this is not a dramatic moment, um, it, but it says a lot about the kind of strategy um, the Fitzgerald uses. Um, so let's go on now and look more. Um, at the boundaries uh, between the animate and the inanimate, because I think this is really a kind of a major strategy um, performed throughout the Great Gatsby. Um, so this is an image uh, of Corona, which is the original uh, for the Valley of Ashes um, that um, Fitzgerald describes somewhere. Um, just this no man's land, um, even in this um, kind of very desolate uh, visual image, uh, but still, um, you know, still we can visualize uh, such a place, um, desolate as it is. Uh, let's look at the way Fitzgerald describes this place. About halfway between West A and New York, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile, so as to shrink away from a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally, with a transcendent <coughs> effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally, a line of gray cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a ghastly creak, and comes to rest. And immediately, the ash gray men swarm up with leaden space and stir up an impenetrable cloud which screens the obscure operations from your sight. I honestly don't know what Fitzgerald is talking about, whether he's really talking about actual ash gray men, I mean, who are those men? They don't look like people who work at gas stations. Uh, we just don't know what they are. Um, so by the end, by the time we get to the end of the passage, the ontological status of the passage is really in doubt. We don't know if this is just hallucination, um, if this is an optical illusion or you know something even worse than that, a hallucination on the part. Uh, of Nick, um, so um, the we can now see um, the fact that inanimate objects have agency and are capable of moving. Um, that they tend to render the visual field very wobbly, uh, very shaky. Um, it's quite often our focus. Um, quite often, it's like a camera that is moving, it's blurry image. Um, so we don't exactly know what we're looking at. Um, but even though we can exactly say, we can name the thing that we're looking at, um, there is something grotesque about this scene, right? Just And the grotesqueness comes not so much uh, from the landscape itself. Um, in the original landscape, you know, it's just sad, but it's not especially grotesque. The grotesqueness comes really completely from Fitzgerald's rhetoric, from his rhetorical intensification 
of that landscape. Um, ashes growing like weed um, and into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, ashes taking the form of houses and so on, and maybe ashes turning into those ash gray men. You know, maybe they're just optical illusions, that they're not really biological human beings. Uh, we don't know. Um, so it seems as if this kind of grotesque fecundity uh, to inanimate objects, ashes are capable of reproduction. Um, they're capable of reproducing themselves in a way that we tend to think that only animate things are capable of doing, right? Reproduction is not a property, it's not a prerogative of inanimate objects. But here, it seems as if it actually is within the province of inanimate objects to be grotesquely reproductive. Um, so this, this, this um, already what we're beginning to see is the kind of the writing over um, of a lot of things that we had imagined to be on the human side, you know, on the human side of the equation, that all those things that we have, um, you know, that are in our possession, that we are the sole owners of, um, all those things are being written over um, to inanimate objects um, that might or might not be benign towards us. We don't really know what the relation is between these inanimate objects um, and us. But there's another, I think there's yet another <coughs> twist to this, um, to this, um, passage, um, and it has to do with a very uh, unobtrusive, uh, but I would say non-trivial um, phrase, um, which is the, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile. Um, do you guys remember anything um, hearing that phrase before? The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front lawn for a quarter of a mile. So this is the kind of verbal echo um, that of a very small but telling detail that suggests that those two passages are connected. I mean, you know, we can really see what kind of a craftsman he is a genius in a small way, but you know that's why he's so great. Um, is that it's just this completely factual, seemingly factual phrase that serves as the bond between those two passages. So the suggestion would seem to be that there's a kind of an underside to the Buchanan Garden, right? You know that <coughs> mansion, grand mansion, and on and so on. Um, that this is really the underside. Um, and it, in fact, the two of them actually have a lot in common. There's a lot of common ground, and the life, the strange and obscure but very uh, fertile um, and menacing life of the inanimate object would seem to be the common ground uh, between those two. So you know, we, we, we don't have to read very far um, into Great Gatsby to know that there's something very wrong, you know, with that marriage between Tom and Daisy. Um, and um, if this um, does landscape itself suggests that the desolation is never really absent from, from that household. Um, so I know that we are all thinking about Gatsby because really um, Maxwell Perkins um, objected mostly to the this portrait of Gatsby uh, that he's very vague. So uh, here is this 1974 uh, version um, embodied by Robert Redford of Gatsby. Um, and you know, I have to say, um, when I 
uh, see this, it's, 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 it's not, it, I wouldn't say it's not, not my image of Gatsby, but it's also not my image of Gatsby either, because I really haven't really visualized Gatsby all that much. So, you know, it's, I have a kind of funny relation to this. Um, I mean, it's okay, um, but I guess I really could do without him. <laughs> but anyway, it's, um, it, it, it is an interesting um, kind of foil um, to what Fitzgerald is trying to do because I don't, I mean, the, you know, certainly we should see the movie and everything, but um, the book is trying to do something very different. It's not trying to create the Robert Redford-like image um, of Gatsby. So this is um, why um, Maxwell Perkins um, thinks that uh, uh, Gatsby is fake. A personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures. Then there was something gorgeous about him some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. There's almost no physical description. This is very early. It's true, we haven't seen Gatsby, but there really is never a full-fledged physical description of Gatsby. Um, and instead, we get this very, very oblique, very abstract, uh, descriptions uh, of Gatsby, um, telling him, telling us um, about his personality, uh, but not even supplying us with adjectives um, to name that. So you know, we can just look at the simple level of syntax. Um, is hedging, is circuitous, is in the conditional tense, right? If begins with the word if if personality is on a broken series. So right there, it's not even a declarative <coughs> sentence, it's a conditional sentence, if and then construction. Um, so, you know, it's not, Nick is not even fully committed, committing himself um, to that description. Um, he's, he's, he's holding back to some degree. Um, and not only that, not only is this kind of very obtrusive conditionality um, to the syntax, uh, but then, uh, uh, out of nowhere, this, this description <laughs> that he's related to this uh, machine, seismograph uh, machine, that registered earthquakes 10,000 miles away. You know, this, it really isn't a very vivid analogy at all. It's not a graphic analogy. Gatsby does not look in the least like that kind of machine, right? You know, we don't know what he looks like, but we know for sure that he doesn't look like one of those machines. So it is not an analogy that is, that is helping us to visualize Gatsby. Um, and quite the contrary, it's making it, so that's why I think that you know, the movie is really its own entity. I mean, it's not really uh, related to the book, it's a totally different medium. Um, this is the linguistic medium that, um, that Fitzgerald is working with and is trying to do something different. So um, it, um, you know, and I, was, I have to say, it is an open question. I mean, some of us actually are more stimulated by the visual medium than by the linguistic medium. So, you know, I'm not saying here that, you know, that the movie is inferior to the novel, um, but I do think that we have to uh, be sure to give the linguistic medium its due um, in the sense that it really is trying to do something different. Um, so um, we don't, you know, know uh, what what Gatsby is like. Other than that, um, he is someone who seems to be working with uh, great 
be able to work with great distances. You know, he can register um, an earthquake 10,000 miles away. I mean, that is really not a skill or talent that is necessary in the Great Gatsby. No earthquakes in the Great Gatsby. But there is um, something um, that calls for kind of a long distance tenacity and uh, persistence, which is actually across time, being able to be faithful to one idea. So it's not 10,000 miles away, but over a number of years, remaining <coughs> stubbornly attached to that one idea of a woman. Um, so this right there, there's also a kind of um, substitution or transposition um, of, um, of, of a temporal attribute onto a spatial attribute as well. But in any case, uh, by not completely pinning Gatsby down, um, I think the Fitzgerald is really uh, inviting us um, to project our own meaning uh, or project our own reading of Gatsby um, into this very, very loosely assembled, very pointed, but oddly enough, pointed but not focused. Um, it's a paradox, um, but I think that that's really the effect that Fitzgerald uh, is trying to cultivate. So um, we, uh, we spend quite a bit of time uh, talking about comedy and uh, tragedy um, last, last couple of classes. Um, and I want to uh, bring those back and um, talk a little bit once again uh, about them as a mixture, um, that um, they're not two very discrete genres. Um, in the three authors that we're reading, um, they tend to be um, crossover, um, very much um, crossover genres in, in, in The Great Gatsby. Um, and in here, because the inanimate, because machines are so important in this novel, um, comedy is quite often uh, channeled through um, high-tech gadgets. Um, and here is one, you know, kind of very local, very basically just right there, um, instance of comedy. Um, every Friday, five trays of oranges and lemons arrive from a footer in New York. Every Monday, the same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of Publis house. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a buffalo's thumb. Um, so I think that Fitzgerald is having fun uh, with this. Um, this is comedy both um, as it comes to us, but also comedy in the act of composition. I mean, this is obviously uh, an author who's having a great, good time writing about this. Um, so the reduction of the butler to just his thumb, and the thumb reduced once more to a completely utilitarian function of pressing this button uh, 200 times in half an hour and producing the effect on our oranges. Um, so this is, this is hilarious. It's not, I mean, I guess it's terrible if we think about it from the butler's point of view that this is what he has to do. Um, but um, I mean, maybe it's kind of repetitive, monotonous, kind of terrible kind of labor, really, if we think that that's what we have to do. But as Fitzgerald is telling the story, it's really not supposed to be tragic. Um, it is comic, although the, I would say that the the tragedy, or at least the phenomenon of, uh, of just kind of unbearable, kind of repetitive labor is actually not so far away from it either. Um, that is the nature of comedy here. Um, so we'll move on. The, that little machine, even though it's memorable, it's, it's not a star player um, in The Great Gatsby. The telephone is a star player. 
Um, and this is an image um, of um, just what the telephone, very glamorous looking <laughs> machine, very beautiful. Um, so you can see that why people would want to, you know, write works of literature about such a beautiful machine. Um, and before we get to, uh, you, you guys know I'm going to talk about that phone ringing, you know, when the Buchanan's are having dinner, right? So um, we'll get there. But for now, I just want to have a little detour um, by way of the great poet who's also, who mostly is known for his writing about nature and is not known for his writing about technology, Robert Frost. Um, but Robert Frost actually has a poem called The Telephone, and I think it's a very, very useful uh, counterpoint, actually, um, to Fitzgerald. And you see whether he's really talking about the telephone. The title of the poem is The Telephone. Um, and quite often in Frost, is, this is a dramatic dialogue, it's a dialogue between two people. Having found the flower and driven the bee away, I leaned my head, and holding by the stalk, I listened, and I thought I caught the word, who is it? Did you call me by my name, or did you say, someone <coughs> said, come. I heard it as I bow. I may have thought as much, but not aloud. Well, so I came. So it's a lovely poem. Um, and it's, a love, it's a love poem about two people who are in love. Um, we don't know the gender, actually, I, but I think it's a man and a woman. Um, is someone really wanting to see someone, right? And just taking, finding an excuse to come and see that person, claiming that, um, that, that he's hearing a voice telling him to come. And that is the telephone, in big quotation marks, uh, that for us, he knows about the telephone, but he's really not talking about the machine. <coughs> he's talking about um, the kind of impalpable, um, uh, uh, kind of um, audio, uh, 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 the audible bond, or, or the bond of audibility, um, that, that just brings uh, one person to the presence of another person. Um, and uh, it, that is the telephone line. It is that emotional uh, cord that really binds one person, and that is the most powerful telephone line of all. Um, so it's a lovely poem, and it's very much humanizing the telephone, um, giving it, uh, turning it into an emotional romantic context, uh, charged with human emotions. Uh, and it's really the fact that it's the carrier of human emotions uh, that makes the telephone such an important uh, human vehicle. Uh, it is completely, has been completely assimilated um, into the everyday world of, of just human intimacy. Um, so um, let's see what Fitzgerald does uh, with the telephone. The telephone rang inside, startlingly, and as Daisy shook her head decisively at Tom, the subject of the stables, in fact all subjects, vanished into air. Among the broken fragments of the last five minutes at table, I remember the candles being lit again pointlessly, and I was conscious of, a want, of wanting to look squarely at everyone and yet to avoid all eyes. I couldn't guess what Daisy and Tom were thinking, but I doubt 
if even Miss Baker, who seemed to have mastered a certain haughty skepticism, was able utterly to put the fifth guest's shrill metallic urgency out of mind. So on the other end of the spectrum uh, from Robert Frost, I mean, surprisingly, actually, because he's on the other side of the spectrum, actually, the uh, telephone, actually, is also charged with intense emotions. You know, this is not just a machine. So, you know, we can al almost say, we can almost always say that machines are, are always um, carriers of human emotions in one way or another, and that's why they're important uh, machines. I mean, if they were just like that button that the butler presses with his thumb, um, you know, it's just a, wouldn't, you know, be a very important presence at all, but the telephone is a very important presence in The Great Gatsby. Um, and what's interesting about this particular um, scenario um, constructed around um, this high-tech machine in the 1920s is the association uh, of, the, of this high-tech machine with an intrusive force into a traditional household, right? Before the telephone rang, it was a pleasant dinner, um, and um, Daisy and Tom and her cousin Nick and a good friend Jordan Baker all sitting down to a very civilized um, dinner. Um, and in the course of that civilized dinner, suddenly the appearance of barbarian hordes uh, that was mentioned by Tom, right? Because he's been reading this book about the rise of the color empires. So this is the first intrusion of somebody not wanted, um, but not quite dismissible. You know, that is not a trivial uh, reference because actually Daisy then picks it up and talks about her white girlhood and so on. So the rise of the colored empire by Godard that, um, Godard that Tom has been reading. That actually is the first intrusive, uninvited guest. Uh, it's just a book, but it's very much was an uninvited guest to the dinner. Um, and then there's a second uninvited guest coming by way of the telephone. Um, so, you know, we can say there's a causal relation between them. You know, it's not as if the telephone is always bringing in people from a different social class, really. Um, and we know later um, that, that um, Myrtle, who's calling here, um, is of such an unacceptable social class, even though she's okay as a mistress, it's not okay for her to mention Daisy's name, right? When she mentions Daisy's name, Tom breaks her nose. So, you know, that is the taboo that um, Tom would not allow Myrtle um, to break. Um, Someone like her has no right to mention his wife's name. Um, that comes later. Right now, all we know is that there's a lot of malice on the part of, um, of Myrtle. Um, you don't call, if you want to talk to someone discreetly, you don't call during dinner time. Um, so it, it was a call that comes bearing malice to begin with um, and is met with. Uh, well, I mean, malice or, or just uh, the luxury of being able to ignore her, uh, which is the luxury that um, the, the freedom that um, Daisy um, and Tom um, uh, summoning at this moment. Um, so um, all the sort of social antagonisms um, that are kind of bubbling actually 
beneath the surface of the Great Gatsby, uh, all of those antagonisms are being um, foregrounded uh, by virtue of this high-tech machine. Um, so, um, and we also shouldn't forget, I mean, this is a book, um, The Great Gatsby is not a book about race. Uh, we have to be very careful um, that um, it's, 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 even though it's reference to rise of the color empires, it's not primarily about race, but race is also not unimportant um, in the Great Gatsby, which is very, very strange. I mean, somebody should write a paper about this, uh, beginning with the reference to rise of the color empire. There's actually a persistent undercurrent uh, of, um, of of blackness, actually, and um, in in this novel. Um, so um, as this also is a kind of um, undercurrent of Germanness um, that Gatsby is supposed to be in the pay of the German army, he's supposed to be a cousin uh, of the Kaiser. Um, all of those are really, really peculiar and quite insistent. So you know, um, as you go on to write papers, you know, something to notice. These very marginal references, um, they are not trivial. So um, let's look now um, at the very um, the, the, the really the star player, the star high tech player, who's going to be the star player all the way through the Great Gatsby, uh, which is the car, and um, you should call it automobile, which is a more dignified uh, name. Um, so here's the automobile, um, and this is the 1920s uh, Rolls Royce, um, and this actually is a pretty good representation, or at least this is the car um, that uh, that that that. Um, that was used in the uh, in the Great Gatsby, um, and we see Nick and uh, Gatsby there. Uh, Sam Waterston uh, is Nick, uh, Robert Redford. Uh, so it looks very much like that car. And um, to get a better view of the Rolls Royce, I mean, you know, sorry, um, I have due all respect for the Rolls Royce, but this doesn't seem like a very impressive vehicle. I mean, you know, I can work up some excitement about it. But um, it's not, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's really that stunning. Um, sorry, uh, I mean, it looks more stunning with human beings in it. Uh, but on the whole, I mean, it's just a car. Um, but here, here is um, Fitzgerald's description of the Rolls Royce. I had seen it, everybody has seen it. It was a rich, cream color, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous length, with triumphant head boxes and supper boxes and two boxes, and terrace with a labyrinth of windshields that mirror a dozen suns. Sitting down behind many layers of glass in a sort of green leather conservatory, he started to turn. This is not a description of that car. No, no, I mean, this is pure fabrication on Fitzgerald's part. Um, and uh, it, there's a kind of a reference back, you know, to classical mythology, to a labyrinth. Um, I mean, I don't know what car would have a labyrinth of windshields. Um, so it seems that, you know, Fitzgerald is not really talking about a car so much as just an occasion to use a classical mythology. And this is, in fact, the stuff that modern um, mythology is made of. You know, this is the car, is the heart and soul of modern uh, mythology and is high-tech mythology. Um, that this is what enables us to create myths about ourselves and about uh, other human 
beings that we are intrigued by. So in many ways, um, this is Nick's tribute to this completely mysterious um, and, uh, and, 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 and seemingly um, superhuman um, person, or not superhuman in the way that he's better than all of us, but in the sense that he's not quite human, uh, both maybe subhuman and superhuman but combined, um, that there's something about him um, that they, he's just not like the rest of us. Um, and so as a consequence of Gatsby um, not being quite like the rest of us, um, his car also has to be not quite like anything else on Earth, really. It has to be uh, this, this, this um, basically this creature of language. Uh, but what is also interesting um, is that there's a kind of a gesture, an attempt to go back actually um, to that original image of the Valley of Ashes and the grotesque <coughs> fecundity uh, of the ashes. Um, inanimate objects are capable of reproduction. Here, the car is a green leather conservatory. Um, we don't know what vegetation um, is in that uh, conservatory. It could be that it is not, obviously it's not real vegetation. Um, it is whatever is growing in Gatsby's heart, right? You know, that it is, something has to be growing there in order for it to survive all those years. Um, and oddly enough, whatever is growing there um, can be preserved and knowledge, nourished um, only by high-tech machines um, that he really, Gatsby's, is very much a self-made man um, and he's also self-making a particular kind of romantic relation. Uh, but the nourishment um, that that kind of self-making needs is actually high-tech sustenance, high-tech maintenance, and high-tech sustenance. Um, so um, in all these ways, you know, we can see that um, the, the inanimate has taken over and is really uh, contributing um, and shaping the human world. Um, I want to end with um, two more um, images of the automobile. Um, and uh, this is looking ahead. Um, and the first one is um, a very um, marginal and not especially noticeable uh, detail um, that I think that we should, in fact, try to notice and try to do something with. Um, this is when um, uh, Nick is, is, is uh, going to New York um, uh, with Tom. Um, a dead man passed us in a hearse heaped with blooms, um, followed by two carriages with drawn blinds, and by more cheerful carriages for friends. As we crossed Blackwell's Island, the limousine passed us, driven by a white chauffeur, in which sat three modish Negroes, two bucks and a girl. I laughed aloud as the yokes of the eyeballs rode towards us in haughty rivalry. This is really what I mean by race being a very unexpected undercurrent in the Great Gatsby. Um, this really is a completely unnecessary detail. Um, the, we'll never see that limousine driven by the white chauffeur uh, with the three, with the um, two black men and a young black girl 
black woman uh, sitting in in that car. Um, I mean the sort of the reversal of the of the the, the iconic image of what. Uh, skin color, uh, the chauffeur uh, usually is off, and who's the, the skin color of the people who are usually, usually sitting in the limousine. Um, so a complete reversal uh, of the color scheme uh, of inside a limousine. Um, and, um, but even though that's a striking visual um, detail, it is not necessary. Um, there's no obvious necessity for its placement in the novel. So we do, this is one instance where something is, um, I would say, is underdetermined in the sense that the passage right there, in effect, the rest of the novel, is not giving us an adequate explanation. Underdetermined, not enough information is given to us to enable us to make sense of this particular moment in a novel. Um, the only way we can make sense of it is through interpretation. So, you know, interpretation is actually a necessary link um, in order for this passage to make sense, uh, to be an organic part of the novel. So, you know, I would argue uh, that in some sense, race is being um, uh, adduced sometimes um, as a kind of a visual analog um, to um, people crossing class boundaries, um, that there's something, this is an act of transgression or a kind of a reversal of social hierarchy. Um, Myrtle um, uh, intruding into the dinner of her social betters, you know, and I'm using that um, phrase deliberately, um, that you know that that has to be in quotation marks. But the offense, part of the offense uh, of, of of murder is that she she really should keep stick to her social station, stick to her place, and she's intruding into this private space of her social battles. Um, and in some sense, um, this is the same kind of uh, transgression uh, or intrusion or reversal of the traditional hierarchies um, in the three. Uh, African Americans being driven by a white chauffeur. So all of that is 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 almost as if um, Fitzgerald can't really talk about it um, in in terms of Gatsby, you know, who's actually the person who's responsible, most responsible for that kind of transgression. Um, and Gatsby is really related to murder in that way. I mean, we think about who gets killed at the end of the novel. Um, that is one bond between Gatsby and murder. Uh, but there are numerous other uh, bonds between them and race, a kind of uh, oblique um, transposit racial transposition actually is one of the common grounds between Gatsby and murder. Um, so this is um, a very intriguing moment um, in the in the Great Gatsby, um, and this is just to round up um, what we uh, know. I mean, in the ending of I mean the plot of the Great Gatsby. I don't think I'm giving anything away. Um, this is actually um, the moment when Fitzgerald actually uses the word tragedy. Um, the death car, as the newspaper called it, didn't stop. It came out of the gathering darkness wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappear around the next bend. Uh, we know that this is the moment uh, when Myrtle gets killed, and of course she's, I'm sorry if you haven't read it. Uh, I mean, it's, it, the book doesn't really rest on that, that one detail. You can know it and still 
you know, this great knowledge. We, um, but this is what happens to Murdo. Um, and um, in some sense, it's really, um, there's an echoing already. Um, there was a dead man in a hearse, um, and uh, in, in that previous um, passage about automobile, um, and in this uh, passage, that was just a completely, uh, you know, uh, inconspicuous reference that it just happened to be a hearse. Um, in the second mention of the car, um, it actually is a real hearse, not in the sense that there's a dead body in it, um, but in the sense that it's the carrier of death, it's the bringer, conveyor of death to Myrtle. Um, so we can get a sense of what a careful writer Fitzgerald is, right? You know, this is really, he's someone who works over details over and over again, so that there are these intricate interconnections um, in the novel. Um, and in that way, even though it is not as complicated, it's not, it is every bit as complicated as Faulkner, it's not as difficult to read, you know, on the face of it as, as Faulkner, but it's a novel that we um, should read over and over again as well, just to get all those echoes and interrelations. Um, so we'll come back on Thursday and uh, wrap up The Great Gatsby. <laughs>